the dangers of adultery. Now, I'm not suggesting that every Christian man needs to follow the Billy Graham rule. It's not something we should be legalistic about or expect everybody to employ in his life. I do think for public figures of Mike Pence's or Billy Graham's stature, there there is some wisdom in that. Um, But you don't have to look far to find people in prominent positions who have fallen to the dangers of adultery. In Scotland earlier this year, a very famous pastor there, a guy named Ian Campbell, committed suicide after it was revealed that he had affairs with seven different women in his congregation. I was ordained in uh, the fall of 2004 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I remember standing before the presbytery that I was in at that time, different presbytery than I'm in now, and um, responding to questions coming from members of this presbytery, uh, many of them pastors, men who were examples of godliness and righteousness before their congregations, men who um, spent their lives studying and teaching the Bible, men who certainly preached against adultery and sexual immorality during their ministries. And since that time, two of them are out of the ministry because of adultery in this presbytery in the PCA. Uh, Adultery is not something to be laughed at, not something to be scorned at. The dangers of adultery are not something to be underestimated. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today. We're going through a sermon series on the book of Proverbs, uh, Extraordinary Living for Ordinary People. Uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom given to us by God's grace to help us as we stumble our way through life, all the challenges that it presents to us. Last week, you might remember, we talked about the topic of family. Proverbs has a lot to say about the family. We looked at wisdom to parents and wisdom to uh, married couples and wisdom to children. And when we looked at wisdom to uh, married couples last week, we got into this just a little bit, you'll recall. Um, But Proverbs has so much more to say about this particular topic. In chapter 2, Solomon already begins to talk about adultery. And then when you get to chapter 6, you'll find that half of that chapter is devoted to the topic of adultery. And if you move on to chapter 7, you'll find that the entire chapter 7 in Proverbs is devoted to adultery. And if you go back to chapter 5, which is our text today, you'll find, as you're just about to hear, that the entire chapter is devoted to to adultery. That's a lot of material in the book of Proverbs. I think I said during the sermon on uh, words that the Proverbs mentions our speech more than anything else. Uh, I might have to go back and recount that because there is a lot of information in Proverbs about adultery. So we're going to read Proverbs chapter 5 now. So if you'd please stand for the reading of God's word and we'll consider under the authority of God's word and the wisdom that God has given to his servant Solomon, the dangers of adultery. Proverbs 5, starting with verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, 
sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near to the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. When your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, guide our hearts and minds as we hear your word proclaimed now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, one thing before I get started that I just kind of want to make clear, I know there's a number of single people here in our congregation, and single people might be thinking, well, this sermon is not going to really have anything to say to me, and uh, I just want to correct that because um, it's likely that you will wind up married one day, and so if that's the case, these things will be uh, relevant to you. And in light of that, I would say that um, any sexual encounter that takes place out of, outside of the boundaries of marriage could be considered a kind of adultery. And so even as a single person, uh, the warnings here in chapter 5 are applicable. But we're going to think of three things here um, today. First of all, how can adultery start? How does adultery hurt? And how can adultery be stopped? So the first thing is how adultery can start. Looking at the first nine verses of chapter 5, and we see here very clearly as the chapter starts that one of the ways we can begin to go down the path of adultery is by listening to certain words. So you look at verse 3, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. There's a picture here of a woman talking in an irresistible, persuasive way, words that are appealing, words that, that can't be turned down, words that draw in the listener in an insidious way. These are words that might seem innocent at the outset, but in the end, it turns out that's not the case. These are words that can come to a person through Facebook, through Messenger, through Twitter, in person, by email, 
These are words that a woman might say to a man something like, I've never met someone like you. I know you're married. I'm married, but I sure wish my husband was like you. I sure wish he listened to me like you do. I've never felt like this. I've had various feelings with my husband, but I've, I've never felt like I feel with you. I'm so thankful that God sent you to me. Spiritualize it. Put a little Christian veneer on it. Make it seem a little more persuasive. That's the kind of words that Solomon is talking about. They drip like honey. They're irresistible. They're smoother than oil. And they come from this person in verse 3 who is described as a forbidden woman. Now, some of you might be saying, wait a minute, this seems like it's really unfairly accusing a, a woman here. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why some of the people have objected to the Billy Graham rule and Mike Pence and his desire to, to follow it. It seems like it makes um, the, the woman out to be the problem. But that, that's not the case if we look at the entire counsel of God. There are plenty of examples uh, in Scripture of men <laughs> behaving badly, sexually speaking. Um, certainly the best example is David and Bathsheba. There's David, a king, a man with power. He looks out and he sees a woman and he desires her and he uses his power to oppress her, to take her, to victimize her. Now I think Bathsheba was, it seems like, perhaps a willing participant, but David is taking advantage of Bathsheba in that situation. And um, that is certainly an example of a man who is guilty of sexual immorality, a forbidden man, we might say. And if we look at the context here, back at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, we see the way Solomon is presenting this to us. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. This is a father talking to his son. And so the context would call for words to be speaking about a woman who might tempt uh, this man's son. I think if the man, the father, were talking to his daughter, he'd be talking about uh, the forbidden man. So I don't think the Bible as a whole is suggesting that women are, are the problem. But the lesson is taught through the use of this particular story of a father talking to a son. So these words come from this, this woman. They drip like honey. But, you know, we can also hear words that come from our culture. Maybe they don't come from the, the lips of a woman, but there's certain things we hear in movies, in, in the news, um, that seem to make adultery seem maybe a little less dangerous than it is. We hear people say, don't be so prudish about this. Um, we hear people say, this is the 21st century. Things are so different now. We hear people say, you ought to follow your heart. We hear people say, you deserve to be happy. Um, you've been mistreated and misunderstood in your marriage. You're unhappy, and nobody should be unhappy. So if another person makes you happy, you ought to pursue that. And again, then some will spiritualize this and say, don't worry about it, because God will forgive you anyway. So go ahead and commit adultery. Words from the forbidden woman, words from our culture, they sound good, they seem persuasive, but verse 4 tells us where they lead. In the end, these words are bitter. They might taste good going down to begin with, but they end up bitter as wormwood. They're sharp as a two-edged sword. They cut 
They kill. They slice. Verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sheol is an Old Testament word for the realm of the dead. Sometimes the word is used to refer to a place of punishment. The doctrine of hell doesn't really get developed until the New Testament, but we have little inklings of this. And so that could be what is in mind here, that by following the adulteress, you could be following the path to hell. That's where these words lead. Now, there's an important contrast that we see as we move down to verse 7. We've been warned against the power of words and the way words can start us down the path of adultery. But in verse 7, the father says, And now, sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. There's other words that are being spoken here. Words coming from the father to the son. And the father is saying, don't listen to that forbidden woman. Listen to me. Pay attention. Do you see that the verse 1? Be attentive. Some of your translations might say, pay attention. I mean, how many times, parents, have you said that to your kids? Pay attention. Listen. You know, we say that when we really want them to get something. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You sit them down. You make sure they're looking at you in the eye, and that's probably what the father is doing here with his son. Listen to me. Don't listen to the words of that forbidden woman. Listen to my words. This is a responsible, godly father having a conversation, a frank and open conversation with his son about the dangers of adultery. You know, we hear about the talk that parents are supposed to have with their children. And sometimes parents ask, have you had the talk with your kids yet? Or sometimes kids talk about that. Have your parents had, had the talk with you? And we all know what that means, the talk. It's that, it's that talk about sex. And it's always referred to in the singular, the talk, as if there's going to be one talk, and then once the talk is done, it's over, and you're never going to talk about it again. I, I hope, parents, that you're prepared and willing to have a multitude of talks with your kids that resemble the content of what we're reading here in chapter 5. You've got to be frank and open with your children. Your children are going to get messages about sex and adultery from the culture. They're going to be flowing into them day after day, year after year. And it's up to you to keep them on the path of righteousness and to keep their views in line with what is revealed uh, in the Scriptures. So have talks with your kids, just like we see here in chapter 5. Well, uh, I, I noticed this article in... Um, Atlantic Magazine, and it was one of the various media outlets that was talking about Mike Pence and his following of the Billy Graham rule. And I found this very refreshing take on that whole thing from The Atlantic. It's a secular publication, but the writer said this. He said, I am very reluctant to cast judgment on whatever measures a couple take to protect the sanctity of their marriage. When I see stories in the news about men and women who have strayed from their marriage vows, my first instinct is not to point and laugh, but to instead be deeply saddened and reflect, there go I, but for the grace of God. This is a person who understands humbly how easily the path to adultery can begin. And so he has respect for um, steps that are taken to protect the sanctity of marriage. Now, am I saying here, suggesting that 
you know, a Christian man should never have a conversation with another woman who's not his wife? No, I'm not suggesting that. Um, but you know what I'm saying. You, you know that there is a conversation. You know that there's a certain, certain tone, a certain intimacy that can begin to develop in a conversation between a married man and a married woman who are not married to each other that is about to go down the wrong path. And you need to be prepared to flee from that. I mean, what does Solomon say here in verse 8? Keep your way far from her and do not even go near the door of her house. Does that sound like an overreaction to you? Go down a different street. Don't go down her street. Is that being prudish? Is that being legalistic? Or is that being wise? That's, that's biblical. Solomon says, stay away. That's how adultery can start. Generally, it starts with words, just an innocent conversation that ends up going in the wrong direction. But how can adultery hurt? Let's consider that next, verses 9 through 14. One thing I want to be clear about here as we look at uh, the Word, sometimes you read the Bible and you just feel like there's just so many you know, prohibitions and so many do's and don'ts, but I want you to know, friends, that God's instructions are for your good. God's instructions are so that your life would flourish and thrive, so that you would live in this world in the way that God intends, and so that you would avoid the pain and heartache that comes from disobedience to Him. His wisdom, His laws are not to hold you down and strip away your joy, but to help you live well. So Proverbs 13.6 says this, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. Sin overthrows the wicked. Think of righteousness as, as a guardrail holding you in from destroying yourself. There are many ways that adultery can hurt. And here's what we see in verses 9 through 14. First of all, there's some danger involved in adultery. Look what he says, verse 8 and 9, keep your way far from her, do not go near the door of her house. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others in your years to the merciless. And I think what Solomon is referring to there are the, the merciless being those who have been offended by adultery and who are so filled with vengeance and rage that they offer you no mercy that these are, that this is the, the, the wife or the husband of the person with whom adultery has been committed. These are the friends, the children, the, the family members who remember what has happened. And this goes on for years, for years to the merciless. It goes on for decades. The people who are offended by the adulterous act, they don't forget. And they want you to pay. I mean, we see it very often in the news, don't we? We see all sorts of examples of you know, domestic disputes and sometimes people shooting each other because of some kind of an adulterous affair. It happened to Steve McNair. Do you remember him? The quarterback of the Tennessee Titans in 2009 was shot to death by a woman that he was having an adulterous affair with. Now, I'm not suggesting that happens to everybody who commits adultery. I'm not trying to scare you, but isn't it the case that if Steve McNair were faithful to his wife that he would be alive today, more than likely? The merciless, when adultery is committed, danger can ensue. 
Well, we also see that there's a certain amount of loss also. Verse 10, keep your way far from this adulterous woman, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Look what Solomon is mentioning here is, is this. He's saying that you, know, you, you spend years as a married person pouring into your wife and building a home and raising your kids, and then you fall into the temptation of adultery, and you find that, that you've lost all those things. But not only that, but now someone else has stepped in and they're benefiting from all the labors that you have been expending over the years to build a home. Strangers come in. Foreigners come in. And they enjoy the labors that you have put forth to build up your house. And there's a sense of great loss. There's a, a song by a country artist, Toby Keith, where he says this, that's my house and that's my car. He's, he's, he's driving back into his uh, town where he used to live. That's my house and that's my car. That's my dog in my backyard. There's the window to the room where she lays her pretty head. I planted that tree out by the fence not long after we moved in. That's my kids. That's my wife. Who's that man running my life? He looks in there and he sees she's got another husband. Someone else is a enjoying the labors that I put forth to build my home. Someone else is tucking my kids into bed. Someone else is kissing my wife goodnight. Because I listened to the words of the forbidden woman and committed adultery. Great sense of loss here in chapter 10. We also see regret, verses 11 through 13. At the end of your life, at the end, at the end, where there you are, your life is over, you're on your, your deathbed perhaps, you're looking back upon your entire life, and one of the things that comes to mind is your adultery. And you groan. And when your flesh and body are consumed, you say, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. I remember my parents telling me that I should be careful about this. I remember hearing that sermon at New Life on August 13th, 2017, from Proverbs chapter 5, where I was warned against adultery. I remember reading it in my Bible, and I paid no heed. I rejected it. It seemed foolish to me, and I did what I wanted, and now all I can do at the end of my life is groan. That's what Proverbs is saying. This is what happens to those engaged in adultery. Regret and then lastly, there's a measure of shame. Verse 14. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The assembled congregation. That's the gathering of God's people. Getting together every Sunday to worship. The equivalent of the church in the New Testament age. And in the midst of that group of people that I used to always go worship with Sunday after Sunday. Now I find myself in the brink of utter ruin among them. And I can't show my face there anymore. Because I'm afraid of being judged. Because people are going to know. So I'm not going to go anymore. I'm not going to church. And in fact, I'm not even sure if I believe in God anymore. 
because this is the only way to deal with the shame. It's the only way to deal with the guilt. If there is no God and there is no legitimate church, I just put all that aside, and my conscience is clear. And so this shame drives us to utter ruin, even in the congregation. These are the ways that adultery can hurt. And, of course, there are many more examples that that we can think of that aren't necessarily um, included in this chapter. But it could be that some in this congregation right now listening to me are on the cusp of engaging in some kind of an adulterous relationship. You've been kind of toying with the idea. You've been kind of relishing it. You're, You're thinking how sweet that would be, how exciting it would be. You're thinking about how boring your marriage has been. And oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to just indulge in this? Friends, you read Proverbs 5. Let me just say, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure? Do you want to be brought to utter ruin? If you're tempted to adultery, if you're on the cusp of that right now, you're, you're this close to ruining your life. Because adultery can hurt in all of these ways. It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts your spouse, of course. Hurts your children. Hurts your family members. Hurts your church. It's not worth it. Adultery can hurt. But there is a way, as the chapter goes on, to tell us about how adultery can be stopped. And the answer is perhaps not what you would think it would be. Because you might think that the answer that would be something very simple like this. Well, just don't have sex. <laughs> just make sure you never have sex. Sex is bad, so turn away from it, and, and that's the way you deal with adultery. The, the Bible's answer to how adultery can be stopped, prevented, is actually very, very different. and maybe surprising, and I find people are very often surprised that this language is in the Bible. For the remainder of chapter 5 here, and premarital counseling, you know, generally always gets a little bit of a rise out of people when, when I read this portion of this passage. Um, but what Solomon says is, here's the antidote to, to adultery. It's, it's not to not have sex, it, it's to have sex. The Bible says you should have sex. God wants you to have sex, but with your spouse, within certain boundaries. That's the, the command of the Scriptures. A guy named Ray Ortland gives us an example. He, he compares sex to fire. He says when fire is in the fireplace, that's what, when it's contained within the boundaries of the fireplace, it functions very well. It's really great in that place, isn't it? I mean, it warms the house. It gives a certain glow in your living room. Uh, it's a, a wonderful thing to have fire contained in the fireplace within its boundaries. But when fire gets out of the fireplace, what does it do? It burns the house down. (laughs) And that's the way sex is. Wonderful when it is practiced within the guidelines and boundaries that God has set forth. So here's what Solomon says, starting in verse 15. He draws this comparison um, involving a well. Verse 15, he says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. So the picture here is a a person who's, who's very thirsty and the person wants that thirst quenched, and so that person goes and drinks this water that is flowing from this 
well. But notice as it goes on, there's an emphasis on exclusivity here. Yeah, you need to, to drink from the well, but notice what it says in verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. In other words, there's a, a well that belongs to you, so drink from that well. But the water that springs from your wells is not intended to be shared by strangers. It's not something to be spilled out on the street for just anybody who wants to come along and enjoy it. It's limited to your well, yourself alone. Now, so what is this metaphor referring to? Well, we go on to verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And there we see the boundary. What Solomon is commanding is sexual activity, intimacy within the boundaries of monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Notice Solomon is not saying, you know, be active, be intimate with the person that you want to be your wife or the person that you, that you um, have even promised to make your wife one day. I don't think he's talking about engagement period here. He's talking about the wife of your youth, that is, the person that you've been married to since you were young. The implication here is that this is a marriage relationship that has been going on for a while. It's not the wife in your youth. It's not, okay, be intimate with your wife while she's just, you know, young and very attractive. It's the wife of your youth. It's the wife you took when you were young. Years have gone by. The implication is that intimacy is continuing in that relationship. And this is the solution. This is what Solomon is saying is the way to guard yourself from adultery. This is the protection from adultery. Regular intimacy among husband and wife for the duration of their marriage. Now, of course, as couples get older, there are certain challenges that might come about. Um, this is going to look different for, for different people. But, I mean, it's really... <coughs> Excuse me. It's really startling how the Bible describes this sexual relationship. There's a common stereotype in our culture that faithful monogamy over many many years is, is just is a boring thing, and so therefore you know you ought to be prepared to experiment because there's no way um, a lifelong relationship with one person could be satisfying. That's not at all the picture that we get here, is it? Look what. What uh, Solomon says here, verse 19, she's a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her love. Be drunk on your spouse. That's what Solomon is saying. And the idea is that if you're intoxicated with your spouse, you won't be intoxicated with others. Verse 19, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman? It seems maybe impossible. How can that really be when you're married to the same person for decades? Um, I, I've shared this illustration before many times, actually. I just think it summarizes this so well. So I'm going to say it again. Wilt Chamberlain, a very famous NBA basketball player years ago, claimed to have had sex with 20,000 women over his lifetime. But right before he died, he said... I have found that sex with one woman a thousand times is more satisfying than sex with a thousand different women. 
Speaking from experience, Will Chamberlain. The New Testament sums this up. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. The context is sexual relationship. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we see it repeated. This is not just an Old Testament thing, but a command from Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, I, I know this topic is squeamish, and you're probably all feeling really uncomfortable right now. Um, I, I just don't want it ever said that years down the road, that if one of you falls into sexual immorality, that my pastor never told me. My pastor never mentioned this. I don't ever want that happening. So I'm telling you. Proverbs 5. A few things to conclude. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's people here fall in a number of different categories. Some people here maybe have um, committed adultery in the past. Uh, some people here might be involved in an adulterous relationship right now and you think nobody knows and you think nobody's going to find out and maybe the adulterous affair occurred 10, 20, 30 years ago. Nobody knows. Verse 21. A man's eyes are before, excuse me, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. I mean, think of that, God pondering all of your paths. And that would include your adultery, if that's true of you. You cannot escape the watchful eye of God. You're not getting away with this. So come to grips with it. Deal with it. Confess it. Acknowledge it. There might be some people in here who have been victims of, of adultery. Maybe you have a spouse who has cheated on, on you. And you're wrestling with how to deal with a spouse who has proven himself to be or herself to be unfaithful. Uh, you know, you have a right, absolutely, to be angry, to be outraged, to be hurt, to be struggling with how in the world do you trust your spouse now? And I don't have easy answers for that. But I just want to say that it would be best if you began to pursue the path of forgiveness. If it's fresh, that's going to be really hard. If it's been years, I, I just would think that's God's will for you. Maybe you haven't committed adultery, but you are a sinner too. You are in need of grace too. Do you remember the story of the adulterous woman? J uh, Jesus talking to the adulterous woman, and he says to everybody hanging out there, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Pastor Brian taught on that last Sunday. Everybody leaves because everybody knows that they don't have a right to condemn this woman because of their own sin. So humble yourself and be prepared by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to extend forgiveness as Christ has forgiven you. But there are others here maybe who have committed adultery and you're just racked by guilt. And maybe you have 
talked about it. Maybe people know, but, but you're just carrying a heavy burden, and you're thinking there is no hope for me. And I just want you to know there is hope for you. And as you have shared perhaps this part of your life with people and you have found rejection from everybody, as you've tried to confess, God will not reject you when you bring this sin to Him. He will not. You can confess it to God. You can say, Lord God, I have offended your holy ways. I have been unfaithful to my wife. I've been unfaithful to my husband. And I am heartily sorry for that. I am ruined because of my own behavior, but Lord, the only one I can look to is you, and I call on you to forgive me and have mercy on me. And I believe that your son paid the penalty for me, that when he died on the cross and bled there, that he took my punishment. And you have promised that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I just take you on your word, Lord and accept your forgiveness. That, that's what you got to do. If this is you, go to the gospel and receive forgiveness and cleansing. There is no sin that can extend beyond the reach of God's grace. And that's what the song mentions that we're about to sing. Lord, I need you. We are all in need of the gospel, whether we've been faithful to our spouses or not. We are all in need of the blood of Christ. And so this is an appropriate song for us to sing, and so let's do that.